Good evening and welcome to the Alex and Mo I Am a PT podcast. Uh, I'm Mo and that's Alex. We are awaiting uh, Dr. Cindy Duke to be joining us. Um, she's a pretty busy uh, physician and businesswoman. So uh, once she gets into the studio, we'll have her talking. Um, you know, she pays a lot of attention to her patients. Yep. So, so she, yeah, she just texts us. She's still with a patient right now. So um, we will, you know, do our best to entertain y'all till we get uh, Dr. Duke on with us. But, um, you know, following her Instagram has been uh, kind of pretty informative. She's very, very good in her social media, uh, very informative stuff. Um, you know, one of the things that she does, obviously, kind of hits home with me on um, the fertility stuff uh, as you know, that's how Lauren and I were, were blessed with our two boys. We, we had to go that route. Um, so it's, it's a very, very challenging route and uh, look forward to kind of hearing her perspective on that from obviously the physician side and, and our doctor that helped us uh, was amazing. Uh, both her and her husband's a urologist. So that kind of, it was pretty cool to have like a husband and wife team uh, working with us, you know, when we were going through the process. So uh, definitely, definitely unique. And, and then obviously, with you know, as we mentioned last week about the whole Roe and Roe v. Wade and, and how that affects her practice and, and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, yeah, pretty interesting. And it's also Fibroid Awareness Month, uh, so she will be touching on topics like that as well too and um being a black female physician and business owner as we put in the um transcript earlier that she's the only dual virologist and fertility doctor in the u.s yeah i, I mean it's crazy when you read down her accolades and and look at everything that, that she's been able to accomplish this far is, is definitely very impressive. Uh, curious to see how, you know, her journey from, she was born in Trinidad, right? Well, I was going to wait as a, let that be a surprise, but yes. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Actually, actually, actually Tobago. So it's Trinidad okay. and Tobago, but she was born in Tobago. See the little map there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so Tobago is a little one on the top of Trinidad. <laughs> Oh, okay. She learned something new every day. Yep. Okay. So two separate, two separate islands, one country. So she was born in Tobago in a small village uh, called Argyle, um, Tobago, which is immediately adjacent to the village where I grew up in, which is Roxborough. So, um, she but you were, I, you were born in Trinidad, though. No, I was born in Tobago as well. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I was born in Tobago as well. Born and raised in Tobago. So what's the what since we're on the, the Trinidad and Tobago topic, you know, we're giving uh -huh. everybody a geography lesson right now. <laughs> what is like are the two islands like physically separated by water or is there like a roadway now that physically separated by water? Um there is no roadway connecting both islands. So you get to between the islands via a plane ride or using the ferry. So the plane ride is about 10 minutes long. Uh, <laughs> they, yeah. they actually fire up the engines to go to do that? 
Yeah, 10 to 15 minutes long, yeah. That's crazy. I thought it was bad when I was in college at Florida State, so in Tallahassee. So from Tallahassee to Miami, it's like 45 minutes. Uh, but like you would go up, be there for five minutes, and then the captain would be like, okay, everybody, we're coming right back down. Well, but, it's not like a super jet. It's, it's a slow play. <laughs> but that's crazy. It's 10 minutes. Okay, we got the doctor. We got it. I'm going to add her on. Hold on. Hey, guys. Hey. Hey, Alex. Hi, Alex has been making fun of the short plane ride between Tobago and Trinidad. So. Hey, Alex. It's a major ride, okay? Oh, she just told me it's 10 minutes. I'm like, you probably have to take longer it's to take off than what you're in the air. It's not like 12 minutes. <laughs> It, you know it depends on the pilot. You know what's funny? I used to fall asleep on that trip. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. Well, it's the same like when we were driving to school, right? Well, you know, yep. Alex, when we were younger, we went to school in the town, but we lived in the country. And so it felt like we were driving forever, which was like a 20, 25 minute drive to go 30 to 30 minutes drive. Well, and when, we, when my dad, it was probably 20, yeah. Yeah, we would be packed <laughs> out, knocked out, like we just did a two-hour journey. I remember the first time I drove any sort of significance in the U.S., and I was like, oh, my God, the ride was really short. You know, <laughs> going back home, and family members, like my uncle, my mom is a twin, and her twin brother is always like, oh, my God, you have to go all the way there? And I'm like, you guys realize we can circle the entire island in two hours, right? <laughs> like from crazy. end to end, circle it. And they yep. such a big deal. But yeah, I used to sleep on that little plane right to Trinidad. That's nuts. That's nuts. But yeah. anyways, Mo, let's formally introduce our guest here. Um, and then uh, we'll get it going. Absolutely. I'll let you do the honors. My apologies for the late arrival. No, you, hey. you patient care, Literally. patient care. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Okay. And and you you are on a Pacific uh, Standard Time, yes. so we yes. do understand the time difference. So thank you for joining us. This is a great honor. Um, so um, everyone, this is Dr. Cindy. Do you want me to say your your middle name since I know it? Yeah, sure, <laughs> go for it. This this is Dr. Cindy Mariah Petal Duke, um, <laughs> America's only dual virologist and fertility doctor. She and I knew each other from since we were in our mother's womb yes. because they attended the same prenatal clinic. Yes. Um, so it's like we've been vibing from since um, we've been in the womb. Yeah. Uh, as she no said, we went 12 days before me. Yes, I'm, I'm older. So, <laughs> oh, hold on. Did, did, your, did both of your mothers know each other or did they just oh, happen? Yeah. They're related and they were delivering <laughs> at the same time as they called back home courting. <laughs> well, a, a special shout out to Mo's mom, who is our number one fan. Yes, hi. Um, and, and and always giving us that awesome post post uh, episode critique. I love. Um, so, Mama Karu, thank you very much. We appreciate you. Thank you, mom. I love it. I love it. Yes, but yes, our moms actually, our parents knew of one another um but our moms went to the same uh prenatal uh health center clinic so yeah, yeah. so then you guys went to school together we actually went to the same nursery school 
<laughs> and not the same primary school, which is what they'll call elementary school here. And then, yeah, reconnected when we went to high school, which starts at 11. Yep. Age 11. So then how do you go from Tobago? Like, what's the journey like from Tobago? You know, all these small island, that, that, that lifestyle growing up, because we obviously know that it's very different than what a child, you know, my kids would go through right now, elementary. It's just a totally different vibe. I'm from Colombia, South America, so I kind of yeah. understand it. Um, oh, no. well, how, do, how does that journey from there to get you to where you are today? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, my dad and his family had moved to the U.S. when I was not even two years old yet. So we did visit the U.S. Uh, once a year or every couple years. So I was familiar with the U.S., but uh, formally moved to the U.S. at 17, going on 18. Um, went to college in New York City. Uh, I moved here knowing I wanted to be a doctor. Mo knows I wanted to be a doctor my whole life. And also very always keen on science and, you know, just lab science. And so um, I went to metal, I went to college knowing I was pre-med, knowing I wanted to be a doctor. At the time, thought I wanted to be a pathologist because that was the only doctor I know that did lab stuff too. So that was because we had met a pathologist in high school who had come to our school to talk. And she was the first black woman doctor I'd ever seen. And so I had somehow patterned my future dream on this woman that I'd met, Dr. McDonald Boris at the time. And so I applied to medical school intending to be a pathologist who also would do research and lab work. I applied to MD PhD program. So I applied to medical scientist training programs, ultimately uh, was accepted to a number of programs, but decided on the University of Rochester, which is upstate New York. So moved from the Caribbean, where it's so cold that we would wear sweaters on a rainy day with 70 degrees Fahrenheit temperatures, right? We went to school with sweaters on. So moving to upstate New York where they're having legitimate ice storms <laughs> and wind chills in the sub-zero. And I lived there for eight years while doing the medical degree, master's, PhD. Um, and so altogether from leaving high school at 17, and all of my education through residency, fellowship was another 20 years. Wow. College, medical school, master's, PhD, residency, fellowship. Um, and so at 38, I'm dating myself, I finally finished all my training and I started a practice. I moved to Las Vegas and started, built a clinic, a surgery center and started practicing. That, so you definitely, <laughs> that I know you I know you've always wanted to be a physician so you dreamt it you dreamt believed it. you believed in yourself and I, I know your mom believed in your vision because she she's she's your biggest cheerleader um and you you were able to create you were able to create um a path that inspires a lot of people and um what fuels you like what's your why my why you know, I ask myself that every day. Why is it why, Gil? But my why is, one, whatever excites me. And so far, everything I've done has been really exciting. But 
my why when I went to medical school, why I decided on medicine, why I do the work I do in fertility, the reason why I do as much as I do on social media and educating and philanthropy is that whenever I'm no longer on this planet, I want to know that I did the best I could to advance those who look like me, sound like me, and were told like me that it wasn't possible, right? And that's my why. I think whenever I hear people say, I was able to do this because I heard you or I saw you or I heard your mom or I saw your brother, that that heartens me a lot because it, it it says a lot more than we were we were necessarily exposed to Mo, which is, you know, we're here not because we really saw people doing just what we're doing. You know, we didn't even know there was something called a physical therapist until we were watching sports and a physical <laughs> on TV. You know, we're like, oh, people do that because in our island, if you injured yourself while playing, you better hope somebody knows some first aid. But there wasn't like a PT back then. That is, they are now, but not then. Um, if somebody had a stroke, they kind of just came home and their families. Hope they can figure it out. There's no rehab. Um, and so that's for me the, the big thing, Alex, and my, my why, I think. So at, at what point through this process, you know, 20 plus years, did you kind of fine tune that the fertility was going to be a big part of what yeah. you wanted to do? You know, it was actually really early in medical school. So, you know, I went to medical school intending to be a pathologist, right? I went through high school telling people I was going to be a pathologist. When I left home at 17, everybody expected me to be a pathologist, including my mom, who was the last of 12, all her siblings were expecting it. And then I get to medical school and I start anatomy class, which is you're doing cadaveric dissections. And I love the, the dissections and the cutting and stuff, which let me know, okay, you like surgery, but I really didn't like that my patients weren't going to be talking back to me. <laughs> and so ever since I was very little, everybody knows Cindy likes to talk. She's a talker. She's chatty, <laughs> you know. I'm very shy up front, but once we're good, I'm going to chat wow. you up, right? Coming in hot. Coming in hot. And so I was like, wait a minute, this is going to be a problem. I'm going to be that weird person talking to the dead. <laughs> pathology. And so that was the first thing I realized. It's probably not going to be pathology, even though I went to medical school thinking I would be. But what would it be? I wasn't sure. So this was literally within the first six weeks of medical school, first six weeks of an eight-year program, I'm already realizing it won't be the thing I said I was going to do. Um, in fact, it ends up being the very thing I said I wouldn't do. So all through college, I would tell all my friends, not me, I'm not doing OBGYN. No way. I don't want to be a gynecologist. I was sure. And then uh, the second year of medical school comes around and we have to do these things called clerkships. And I was assigned to go to the GYN resident clinic to work with this chief resident who, on the day I was supposed to go, she gets admitted to the hospital with pregnancy complications. So now I don't have someone to supervise me. And they scramble and they said, you know what, the REI clinic can take you, even though usually the clinic didn't take anyone. And so I was sent to the REI clinic, which is off campus. You know, I go into this fancy place, which I still remember, a bunch of non-black babies on the wall everybody there is white <laughs> you know and they seem just as amazed that i'm there as i'm amazed to be there because i didn't know this thing existed just to be clear i didn't know 
IVF or that kind of stuff was like I've heard of test tube babies, I think, before, but I didn't know anything about what that takes or that it's a special field in medicine. I did not know that. Um, so I show up and I'm just blown away very early on because here they are doing stuff with their hands because they're surgeons, but also they're doing lab stuff. They're talking about the chemistry of the body. And by the way, I'm, I was a biochemistry major. My bachelor's degree is in biochemistry. I'm like, oh my God, the chemistry of the human body, you can manipulate it. So very early on in my second year of med school, I'm really excited by this. I'm realizing, wait a minute, women's health. And I quickly realized, oh, in order to do this, I have to do ob <laughs> right? <laughs> and so I start looking into it. I was like, man, I'm going to have to like ob then. I thought I would never do this. And so for six years, I looked at everything else, which was the benefit of being an MD-PhD student. It meant I was at my medical school for eight years because you do the first two years of med school, then you go do your PhD years, which in my case took four years before coming back to the last two years of med school. And so during my PhD years, once a week, every week, you only required to do this for six months, but I did it every week for four years. I would just pick any specialty in medicine and sign up to go to, to their clinics for between six weeks to three months. And so I ended up rotating through every specialty imaginable because I kept looking to see, is there something else that excites me more than this thing that excited me in my second year? And there wasn't anything else, no matter what I saw. Like I loved neurology, but I kept coming up against the whole, once you make the diagnosis, you don't really cure them usually. That troubled me. They didn't do as much with their hands. And even when I talk, I use my hands. So I was like, eh, I need something where I can use my hands. Um, and so, yeah, that's how I ended up applying to OBGYN residency. I was so specific that I remember one of my first interviews for residency. She said, did you mean to put this in your very first line of your application? Which is my application, my personal essay started with I am applying to OBGYN residency because I plan to be a reproductive endocrine infertility specialist one day. And she was like, wow. you know, usually you don't say that. That 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 could limit your options. What if the that's place a, that's a vision board for you? <laughs> that's a vision board. And I but yeah. I was honest about it because I wanted programs to know that not only am I coming to your program to be your OBGYN resident, which I intend to be outstanding at but I'm expecting to be prepared to get into an REI fellowship, which is a three years that follows those four years. So I'm not applying to your program if you don't have a strong history of reproductive endocrine infertility yourself. I'm not applying if you don't have people who can be my mentor for what I need for the next step, because the next step is that important to me. And, and wow. at, that, at that time, so, you know, you mentioned just now, like, I'm not applying to your program if it doesn't have that strong foundation that I need. How many of those programs had that? Well, there are about 30 programs in the country that for REI um, and compared to hundreds of OB-GYN residencies. So um, yeah, I only applied to the places that had established programs. Um, Cause my first thought was it's either I'm gonna stay here or at least I'll get what I need to apply to other places that have the programs. And I recognized what I was up against. At the time, there were probably only about seven to eight black fertility doctors in the United States. I recognized at the time, you know, our numbers are up now. There are about 35 female and maybe about 15 black male. <laughs> Which a lot 
Alexa, it's it's better than physical therapy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so um, <laughs> it's coming up, but you know, and I attribute actually some of that to my own presence on social media because I was the first black fertility doctor to get out there on social media and just start talking about it and let people know, hey, there's a face. I started this thing called the Directory of Black Women Physicians, which also features 95% of the black women fertility doctors in the US amongst other specialists. But you know, I wasn't aware of that. So I knew for me, I wasn't going to be the person who was gonna have a special call made for me to get an interview for fellowship. So I need to go to a program where I'm going to be very prepared, where I would have exposure so that people aren't purposely blocking me from opportunity or inadvertently blocking me from opportunity. So I am glad you you mentioned that there has been an increase in the number of um, black physicians, especially in uh, fertility. Mm-hmm. How important it was for you to be that face. And I know you use social media. A lot of clinicians, whether it's physical therapists, nurses, mm-hmm. they they don't think that social media can make an impact oh, on does. the younger generation or even on their business. Mm-hmm. But you've utilized it well. Clubhouse, mm-hmm. Instagram, Twitter, mm-hmm. Facebook. And not only you are inspiring like young boys, young girls to mm-hmm. get into that profession and they see that, hey, this is someone who grew up in a small village like myself mm-hmm. came to the u.s mm-hmm. did how many years of schooling went to top programs hopkins yale mm-hmm. actually owns our own business that's a success story that's inspiring yeah. so why did you really want to like why did representation matter to you you know it really mattered to me one because i thought back to even like why did i want to be a pathologist i I knew I wanted to be a doctor. Yes, I knew that. By the time I was three and four, I was walking around poking people with pins, right? At my mom's hair salon. Like, I was a little annoying, Alex. <laughs> you know, if you if you messed around, you got a shot. <laughs> You're like, oh, I just get you injected, right? Because I was so into injecting people, which is funny that I go on to be a virologist, pro-vaccinologist and all that, because I was giving people shots from the moment I could remember. But... Um, I remember the reason why I settled on pathology initially, because I was the first black female doctor I'd ever met and seen. And so representation mattered to me even before I understood that that's why representation had impacted my choice initially. And it wasn't until more exposure that I realized I had more options. And so that's what drives me on social media is to make sure people can see the options, hear the options, recognize the options. It's much like, you know, when my brother entered his career and I started realizing there are all these behind the scenes careers that people from all part of the world have never heard of, you know. And so most people are probably thinking, oh, I want to be an actor, an actress, a dancer, you know, the person who's at the front. But the truth is the support team is tremendously large with so many really lucrative career options that that's why representation and my why again, right, makes a difference to me is I don't necessarily expect someone to grow up and actually become a fertility doctor. But if seeing me coming, like you said, from a small village of less than 50 households 
making up a village. And I can still have the accent, but still be out here running a business, earning seven-figure streams of income for the practice, being able to very eloquently state my points and make a change. I want other people to know that. I want them to know whether you look like me, whether you're as tall as me, six foot tall, growing up as a girl, I just felt weird, you know. And Alex, <laughs> six foot tall with no sports talent. Like Mo here, <laughs> Mo here was a talented sports person. That's a prototype. That's a yeah. prototype. I was a tall, vocal sport fan. And people, <laughs> like Mo, and they always tried to get me to be an athlete. That wasn't me, you know. We I mean, try to get at. We try to get her to be on the basketball team. Just stand there like, put your just stand put your hands up. Either basketball <laughs> or like volleyball. Those are the two things. Or, or netball. Netball. No. We had netball. Yeah. Yeah, but I didn't like things coming at me. So I knew, <laughs> nope. <laughs> yeah. But even that representation, I want people to know just because your kid's tall doesn't mean they have to be an athlete. You don't have to steer them that way. The tall girl doesn't have to be a model. You know, if she can be great at science, she can be this, she can be that. And so that's what's important to me is the representation is really to show that there's diversity in that representation. Now, how has that representation uh, impacted your patients? Like how, you know, being a fertility doctor, obviously you've already mentioned there's, there's less of you mm -hmm. as a whole, let alone black females, black males. Mm -hmm. But on the other side of that, there's, the patients, you know, that there's the, the, the men and women, the couples going through these, mm -hmm. these struggles. Um, and I mentioned to Mo before you came, before you're coming on struggles that I know very, very well, because mm -hmm. I was very blessed to, through IVF to yes. have my two boys. Um, so <laughs> I, I know what it's like for mm -hmm. me as the man, even more so for my wife and then uh, together as a couple, to do those things, but to have somebody that, you know, your patients can say, wow, like you look like me, you, you know, I can relate. You kind of understand me a little bit better. Like how has that been? And what has that meant for your patients? I think it's really impactful. So I actually do a number of research related to disparities and disparities in healthcare, health delivery and health communication. And so I can say with data that it makes a difference. I can say, you know, one of the things that is really important in our field is, for example, there's something called the black fertility myth, right? Which is this very pervasive myth that works one to stereotypically shame a lot of black and brown people because even within our own communities, there's this belief that we don't have infertility. We don't struggle with infertility. We're fertile, fertile, fertile. And then there's the negative stereotype that society at large, including healthcare, also has, which is this assumption that somebody black and brown already had all their kids as a teenager. They've, they're on welfare and can't manage all the kids. So as a result, nobody asks them about their future fertility goals. Nobody sends them for egg freezing consultations. Nobody talks to them about these things. So the first thing is someone like myself is able to actually publicly speak about it and say, hey, there's this thing. It's called the black fertility myth. You, the patient, need to be aware of it so that you're not sitting at home in shame because you're not getting pregnant, but you're afraid to let your family, your friends, your places of worship know because you think they're going to then tell you you're, 
you're a sinner or your your God is punishing you for something you did. But at the same time, I also want my fellow healthcare professionals to know that there's this really deeply rooted bias that stems from the the, the welfare queen analogies of the 80s and the 70s and 80s in the US and the teen mom analogies that lead to us actually inadequately serving our patients because we're not even offering them the standard of care, which is, it is not uncommon for a patient to get to me and they're, or they come across me on social media and they're shocked to hear that their doctor doing their annual exam should be asking them about their future fertility plans. And they're like, nobody's ever asked me that, ever. You know, I do a lot of outreach to the LGBTQ community and making sure that people are aware about all of the options available to grow their families. And it's always surprising to hear those patients say, you know, nobody ever brought this up to me. It was just assumed that I'm not going to have biological children because I've identified in this way or that way. Um, so these are the differences that it makes. But I'll tell you the really big difference. And this has been studied now at least three times in three major publications. It's simply the fact of walking into a clinic and realizing that you're not the only brown or black person and that they're actually decision makers who look like you. That makes a really big difference. And it's one that people take for granted, but it makes a really big difference to the patient, um, to their dreams. You know, I intentionally said when I went into that fertility clinic, it was surrounded by pictures of white babies or white appearing babies. And the truth is most clinics in the US still do that. You go to their websites. I published this study back in 2020 of the website analysis of all of our clinics that are registered as fertility clinics in the US. And less than 10% had diverse representation on their website, obviously diverse representation. And I say obviously because someone might identify as non-white, but when you're a patient and you go to a website, unless it literally says this is so-and-so or their name hints at a certain heritage, you're just going by what you see. And yet for a lot of patients of color, that's what they're seeing. They're already seeing unwelcoming spaces. They're seeing websites that don't look like them. Albums of babies that don't look like any baby they can have. That's very exclusionary. Those people are already thinking, well, they're not gonna work with me. They don't work with patients like me. So it does make a big difference in that way. Uh, I, I agree. Um... It, it does matter because there needs to be some sort of comfort level and trust. Mm -hmm. um, the mortality rates um, for black women are already high. Mm -hmm. And you, you've done several studies. You seem to be well-versed in, mm -hmm. in your research as well too, that a lot of black and brown patients complain that mm -hmm. clinicians don't listen to their pain level or respect mm -hmm. the pain level mm -hmm. that they're saying. I mean, someone even like Serena Williams. Yes. Ignored. Famous as she is and has a lot of money, she was being ignored and ended up with a black blood after um, being in the hospital. Yeah, so it, it's it's crazy. So you being in that space, and I was going to ask you why, because you were in the Baltimore region yes. after being trained at Hopkins, then you moved to Connecticut yes. for Yale. Mm -hmm. Number one. Were you ever really thinking about owning a business? And why did you choose Las Vegas? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. I think it turns out entrepreneurship has always been in my blood. I tell people 
first of all, where we're from, most everyone has a side gig, but it's not called a side gig. It's just a thing they do, you know? Yeah. Everybody, every, <laughs> when we think back to all the old ladies that we knew, they'd have a job or something, or even if they were a housewife, they also sold tarts or something on the side. There's something that they did or they sold clothes for people or, you know, they did something extra. And so I think that was always there. And then my mom herself ran a number of businesses, which I was the one that was actually doing the accounting, figuring out the money, the banking, all that stuff. So it was more second nature to me than I realized, right? This whole entrepreneurship bug. But it was during fellowship that I really realized I'm going to have to open my own. And so as I was going through fellowship, I started asking, there's got to be another way to do this. And the more I asked, the more I realized if I wanted to transform how we delivered care and how we created a more inclusive space, if I stayed in academia, I wouldn't be able to do that until I became the leader. If I went into private practice, I won't be able to do that until I became a partner, if someone ever lets me be a partner. Because one of the things I discovered as I started doing interviews was there's some predatory behavior out there amongst those who are in private practice, which is they start a practice, they bring in people who just finished fellowship or residency, depending on the specialty. They bring you in so they can get sort of a continuing medical education because they learn all the new stuff from you. And then they kick you out before you can make partner, right? Oh. And, you know, it wasn't uncommon for people to tell you that, that the typical fertility doctor is going to leave their first job after three years. And that is true. The majority do, like 90% do. And for me, that I was like, that's not me. I'm not that kind of person. If I'm picking something, it's because I'm going to settle into it and do the best at it. And that was what was coming up during my interviews. I would interview and I would say to folks things like, you know, this partnership track, I need you to really outline it on the contract. I need you to say, what are the benchmarks for me becoming partner? Because I don't want this to become a moving target. If you say this is what it takes to be partner, I'm going to work toward that from day one. And so I don't need you telling me, oh, let's see in year four. You know, you're just going to keep moving the target and tell me I didn't achieve it. And so as I went through more interviews and I realized I was literally rewriting people's contracts, you know, <laughs> I was literally sending them back contracts. <laughs> well, I need you to put in an intellectual property clause, because if I come up with a new technology or a new protocol, that needs to be mine. It doesn't belong to you. And they're like, no, that belongs to me. And I'm like, so how do I get this autonomy? And I realized I'm going to have to start my own. <clears throat> And talking with a few friends, your, your, yourself included, Mo, it was very clear. The only way to do that is to start my own. And you can do everything still in private practice, which is I could be an entrepreneur, still be in academia, still do research. I could do all that if I'm the one defining my path and defining my trajectory, which, you know, knock on wood has really gone well. Yes, it has definitely gone well. You've been in business now five years. Yeah, five years last November. Congratulations. And I remember <laughs> telling you that <laughs> it, it's it's not really an easy feat because um, I know for physical therapy, we're not really on the level as you guys because your specialty is the, the insurance is high, the malpractice insurance is high, mm -hmm. number one. Um, 
you being a black female and an immigrant, I told you that might have counted against you. Mm-hmm. And to get into that old boys club to to wait when you were deciding on locations. Yeah. And you said you were considering the West. I was like, wow, yeah. Las Vegas yeah. is kind of close to Ellie. Yes. So maybe much all the famous people are going to go to like a well-known white physician. White male. So, yeah. White male physician. Um, and I was like, hey, it's, it's going to be a challenge. Um, but you, 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 you did it. You, you, you did it. You know, I, I, I feel really proud to say mm. I'm one of, I think, five female-owned fertility clinics in the U.S. and they're 450. Mm. Um, I think the second Black-owned, right, mm. in terms of a clinic and will be the first Black-owned network pretty soon. Um, and it hasn't been easy. I won't lie to anyone and say it was easy. But the truth is, the way I approached starting our business and building it out from scratch and everything was the same way I approached moving to the U.S. Um, by the time we moved, we had no connections here. I didn't even have the paternal side of my family's support. So we moved here, just a unit of three people with a total of $3,000 U.S. to start a whole dream and go to med school right? That was the whole plan. So for me, it's always been out of nothing, you can create something. So I'm never afraid of what if it doesn't work? I know it may not work. It's not supposed to based on what everybody says the stats are. But that then means, hey, you can do it. (laughs) What's the worst you're going to do? Fail like they expected? That's the worst. But then the best is you can thrive, right? Because they've never seen it done, which means you know, you get to really set the bar. And that's what that was like. So I moved to Las Vegas with no ties to Vegas. Um, No one here. I chose Vegas over LA because I chose to move west. Well, first of all, I was sun seeking, right? After eight years in Rochester, four years in Baltimore, three years in New England, I was like, we need sun. So I looked at uh, Florida. I looked at New Orleans. I looked at Texas. I looked at California. And I also partnered with someone who was doing market analysis. And we realized that Las Vegas had a few really interesting points about it. At the time, one of the marketing pearls that they taught me, this person who was doing the market analysis, they said, you know, when it comes to fertility markets, you should always look at cities that are actually expanding sports teams. Wherever a sports team is expanding into, you're going to see your patient demographic, which is people between ages 30 and 45. It's usually also growing. And so at the time, the NHL had just announced that they had, you know, we're going to give Vegas a team. And there were rumblings that an NFL team was going to move to Vegas. And so and I was hockey like, too. They got hockey too. They got, yeah, hockey. So the NHL team that they got was the Raiders, not the Raiders, sorry, the Knights, the Golden Knights. Mm-hmm. Um, and then within two years, the Raiders were announced and now maybe an NBA team. We definitely have a WNBA team already. But that was the thing. So we started looking at it. I realized, you know, one, at that point, my brother had just moved to um, LA. And so I was like, for my mom, it'll be easier if we're actually not far from each other. It'll be easier for her to move. And so that's why I landed on Vegas. It had a major airport because I love to travel. So that was a key factor. Um, There weren't a lot of stories about tremendous uh, prejudice. So that was my concern about certain parts of the South. I was very concerned that when you leave the urban centers, 
you know, people do crap and I wasn't willing to risk. Um, and so, yeah, that's how I came to Vegas. And, you know, Vegas has, it's had its challenges, but what I found was people were welcoming once you got out there, which was the interesting thing. You know, <laughs> when we launched the business, we started off just doing Instagram lives and then Facebook lives. And that turned out to be the best advertising we could do. So in a city that is very billboard heavy, I've never had to do a billboard. We've never taken out a TV ad or a radio ad. Um, we've done maybe two magazine placements that I would say were a poor return on investment, but social media, and then just getting out there and going to the offices of the doctors who would refer and you know, letting them grill me. They'd ask questions, what are you gonna do differently? And you know, they could see, okay, she's competent, she knows her stuff. And I also made it very possible to this day that if they were like in surgery and had a question and wanted to ask me a question, they could FaceTime me from surgery and I'll give my advice right then and there. Even if it's late night and they have a complicated case, like a patient with an ectopic and stuff, and I'm like, what should I do? Do I take her tube? Do I take out her ovary? And I can give some fertility sparing advice. I do it or I'll get in my car and drive to the hospital and help them in that surgery. Um, and so that's what I did. And before you know it, I was seen as an authority here in town and um, and my competitors started running ads against me. That's how you know, right? When you realize all that Google ads are targeting uh, the, the, the haters, the haters, <laughs> which means if somebody searches for Dr. Cindy, their clinic pops up first. That's a whole uh, conversation, but I learned about that too, which is people can run ads using your name. Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm glad you didn't end up in the South, that you didn't end up in Louisiana, that you didn't end up in Texas, yeah, nor like Florida because of the recent, uh, Roe v. Wade, mm -hmm. um, decision. So how has that affected, uh, your practice and fertility in specialty general. in general? Yeah. It hasn't really affected our practice in Las Vegas in Nevada in any way. And that's because Nevada happens to be one of the states where uh, choice is codified into law. And so the Nevada state constitution actually has it written into law, which is something the U.S. Constitution didn't have. So whenever I hear people say, oh, my gosh, with Dobson versus Jackson, the overturn of Roe v. Wade, we lost a constitutional right. I try to correct them because that is the problem. It was never made a constitutional right, which is why the Supreme Court could make a decision overturning another court decision and you lose your right in a state that has something different. Um, whereas in Nevada, it's always been part of state law. Well, not always, but it's, it's part of state law. So in our state, things haven't changed, but we have seen an increase in inquiries. So we have patients calling from neighboring states like, we have a young lady from Utah who literally was about to start IVF in Utah, where their only exception uh, now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned is that a woman can only um, attain an abortion if it threatens her life or rape incest, which in itself is very disturbing, right? They're saying your body has to be violated first before they'll allow you to make a choice about your body in the context of rape or incest, which is wild, right? Um, but... She called and she was like, I'm not starting here. I don't want my eggs or embryos frozen in Utah. And so she, she's driving to Vegas from Utah every couple days to come down to do treatments. Uh, we have wow. patients calling from Arizona looking to move their embryos 
to Vegas. So that's how it's impacting us in that way. Now, in terms of the national landscape, clinics are being impacted already in multiple ways. So there are a couple of states right now that have what's called personhood amendments on the docket for vote. So personhood amendment basically says that the moment sperm and egg meets, a person has formed, even if that's happened in a laboratory. So what that then means is if someone has a fertility clinic where they're doing IVF, which is literally where we put sperm and egg together to create embryos and then see how they do, some of them will stop developing on their own. Others may have chromosomal differences that may not be compatible with healthy life. Um, if a personhood bill passes in that state, suddenly the moments permanent come together, which is fertilization, not conception, a personhood amendment will now say that's a person. And now all of their normal laws about persons go into place. So even you as a parent, if you wanted to move your embryos, you might need a court order to get it to go to another state. If you didn't want to use any embryos you have left over, you can't just say that or say thaw them and they stop existing. That could potentially be called homicide, which is crazy because again, it's not even an implanted embryo. Conception hasn't happened. But right now that is up in Pennsylvania. There's a personhood bill up for vote. Nebraska is gonna be the first one coming up for vote. Um, so that's a big deal in terms of IVF clinics. And we already have clinics also, let's say someone's got a complicated or a complex medical history and they happen to be pregnant with a very high risk pregnancy, maybe three, four babies or more. Um, they're limited in what choices they can make to safeguard their health and the health of the pregnancy. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yikes. <laughs> very somber. But it's the reality we live in right now. You know, there are about 20 states that are sort of, if you look at the map, it's sort of the fringe coastal states. And then there's the whole Midwest and the South, except maybe for Illinois. It's very interesting to look at that map. Now, earlier you mentioned, uh, Dr. Duke, that, you know, part of, you know, your why was the inclusivity, the representation and stuff like that. How does the financial aspect affect that? I mean, from my personal knowledge, you know, insurance in, in the realm of fertility is mm -hmm. little to non-existent. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of times, you know, people that are having to go through the fertility procedures, usually it's cash-based. You gotta, you know, put it on a credit card, take out a loan, whatever the case may be. But there's, like I said, little to no insurance. How does that affect your practice? And have you been able to kind of come up with ways to, to kind of bridge that gap? Yeah. I love that question because it actually addresses three layers of the access issue that we face in the world of fertility. And so, yes, historically, fertility treatments, particularly IVF, has been seen as a service only available to the wealthy. Um, because it costs, the average cost of IVF in the United States is about 14000 And if you're in cities like New York, San Francisco, it can easily run you $25,000 out of pocket if you don't have coverage. Now, on the one hand, there are a lot more states in the U.S. that now have what are called fertility mandates. And interestingly, those states sort of mirror that post-row map. 
And so there are about 14 states now, there are 14 states that actually mandate that any employer with 50 or 100, depending on which state, employees or more need to provide fertility benefits, access to fertility benefits. So compared to 10 years ago, that's really good. Um, so when you look at the map, you're seeing it like, you know, it's states like Massachusetts, uh, Connecticut, New York is the most recent one in 2020, uh, Maryland, Illinois, you're seeing it there. Here in Nevada, we have the largest insurer, which is Health Plan of Nevada, six, which covers 60% of the lives in Las Vegas. They have some coverage, which is they cover diagnostics and they cover insemination, but not IVF. And then we've got lots of employers like the Amazons, the Googles of the world, YouTube, et cetera, who have usually unlimited benefits, Bank of America. There's actually quite an exhaustive list now because more and more corporate entities are realizing that it's an actually amazing recruitment um, carrot to dangle to get people to come in to work with you and an amazing way to retain people which is saying i will cover up to a hundred thousand dollars in your fertility costs if you think of say a same-sex male couple it's usually a hundred fifty thousand dollars for them to have a baby when you talk about donor egg and using a surrogate and so if your employer has health insurance that's going to cover all that you're more likely to stay in that job right absolutely time and so more and more employers are doing that. Um, so Amazon, which is fast becoming the largest employer, because anyone, even the ones driving the Amazon trucks and stuff, they get full coverage, including coverage to do embryo testing uh, from day one. Amazon has made it that from the first day you start working, you get coverage. And so it's a huge drop. So there's, there's that, which is just advocating for more awareness amongst the corporate entities in the United States as to the huge benefits of providing fertility benefits. So I do a lot of that. But of my own volition, I've also in our clinic introduced our own in-house financing. And so if someone is unable to make a full payment, we just have them commit to whatever they can pay down and then agree to a payment plan. And we start and help them have a baby and then they keep paying as they go along. And amazingly, people are really good at continuing to make those payments. They don't abscond on their payments. They don't file bankruptcy. I mean, one has, but you know, in all the years we've been doing this, people make their payments. They go ahead and do that. So that's one of the things I've done to improve access. Uh, we've done a lot to keep costs down and to keep costs down on medications, because it turns out the medicines are really pricey. I, you remember, Alex, they're in the thousands, and so they're yeah. priced. Yeah, and, and that's funny. I was going to ask you that. Like, you know, do you have a way to do that in house as well? Because I feel like that would probably be a huge benefit. Yeah. Um, because, like, in our situation, we had to, you know, look at different pharmacies across the country mm -hmm. to get what we needed. It would get yeah. mailed to us, mm -hmm. and then we're doing all of that stuff. So, and you can easily spend $6,000, $10,000 on IVF medications, wow. just the medicines. And so, yeah, we've come up with a number of, I call them proprietary protocols, because that's really the secret sauce in a lot of what we do, which is using combinations of not just injectable medicines, but tablets that are very uh, much more cost effective and as effective in many ways to achieve the same goals. Um, we work on different ways to sort of what I call prime so that the ovaries and the brain help as much as they can, for example, so that we're not just 
throwing a boatload of medicines that are costly at the patient. So we've done that. Um, we've also started doing telefertility services so that patients from anywhere can reach us and start their services wherever they are and they just come into Vegas for a retrieval. Um, you know, I've had a practice virtually out of the Caribbean also where I'm licensed, where we see patients as well, and then we facilitate them coming just for that. So lots of ways there. But the last thing we're doing is actually working on just getting the U.S. Congress to hopefully codify into law that fertility care is part of reproductive care and rights, right? So, you know, back in 1937, these Supreme Court said reproduction is a human right. And yet the United States is the only developed first world, whichever one you want to call it, country that still doesn't have access to these services. You know, in a country like Japan, where there's access, greater than 10% of their population accesses their fertility clinics. In the United States, less than 1% of our population accesses that, even though we have about somewhere between 15 to 20 million people who need our services every year. We barely do a million. If you go to Scandinavian countries, anyone of reproductive age can get these services done. You go to the UK, same thing. You go to Israel, same thing. Um, we have a long way to go when it comes to that. Hmm. that <clears throat> so this month is Fibroid Awareness Month, and Alex just shared his personal story with IVF. And um, I <laughs> had a crazy period um, in April where I, I blacked out at a patient's oh house God. and fell and hit my head. And it just started a whole stream of things that they discovered. So um, I know you, you shared your, your story as well, which is very similar to what I went through and I'm going through uh, right now. So there, everybody keeps saying it's, it's common. Everybody has it, but there's certain degrees of um, severity with, with fibroids that could put us in critical situations that both Very you and I have been in. Yeah. yeah. You know, I think that's the thing, right? Like we know fibroids are common. Seven out of 10 people born with a uterus in this world will have fibroids. If you look at people of African descent, nine out of 10 of them will have fibroids. Yet we don't talk about it in that regard, right? Because if it's seven out of 10, nine out of 10, we should all have heard of fibroids by the time mm -hmm. we're in our puberty years and we should all know the signs and symptoms to look for. But mm -hmm. it turns out we don't know in part because there's not much awareness. And then the education is really poor around it, right? So like we grew up, it turns out, in families that have a lot of fibroids, but what we were told was heavy periods are normal. Instead of it being, oh, mm -hmm. let's figure out why these periods are so heavy, it was just heavy periods are normal. And you live with it until your body's like, I can't. And that's when we pass out. That's when our heart's like racing. And, you know, we, we were like, in my case, the first time it happened to me, I just sat down on the street in Baltimore because my muscles couldn't move anymore. I was so anemic. Um, so what I want everyone to know is... Fibroids are very common. You're going to discover that you have a fibroid somewhere between age 30 and 40, 45. It's really important to know that while not everyone with fibroids will actually have symptoms, the most urgent type of symptom is when your periods are heavy. And for most people, their periods are heavy, but they don't realize it. So when I tell folks what's a normal period, 
In a normal period, you should not lose more than six ounces of blood total. Total, across all days, total. People are always stunned because they're like, really? Mm. No more than six ounces? I lose that in one pad. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, that's the problem. And so your poor body just cannot keep up with that loss. And yet most people don't realize that. It's also a slow decline in terms of the speed at which your body catches on that it's really sick. And so by the time it catches on, that's what happens, right? You're passing out or you get really slow, you can't move, or God forbid you're landing in the hospital and people are shocked that they're diagnosing a heart attack in an otherwise healthy young person. And so that's why I like talking about it because I want people to hear this and to normalize it because the truth is the reason why we're not aware is we don't like talking about periods, right? A lot of guys, the moment they have period, they cover their ears and they walk out the room. Dads cover their air, they walk out the room. Uncles cover their air, they walk out the room, right? Brothers cover their ears, they walk out the room. And then other women are like, ew, don't talk about that. Or if God forbid they see you and you're soiled from blood, oh, you're so careless, you're so reckless. I can't believe you just soiled yourself. But the truth is, if someone's soiling themselves, short of them not having access to period hygiene products, it probably means their periods are too heavy that they weren't yeah. able to gauge that it was going to be so heavy. And that's usually a time to say, oh my God, let's have a conversation. Have you seen a gynecologist about this? That's the first part. But then we go back to the dismissal of patients because a lot of the patients with fibroids tend to look like us. They're black, they're brown. They're often dismissed at first. You know, I always talk when I do DEI lectures about this one textbook that I had that I remember being disturbed by. <clears throat> it's 2003. I'm studying for step one of the U.S. medical licensing exam. And, you know, you're studying all this stuff. And I get to a page where it literally says Hispanic patients are prone to histrionics, right? So here they are programming you that your Hispanic patients are going to be histrionic. What does histrionic mean? It means you're going to exaggerate and all that stuff so that now Somebody comes in and tells you her periods are heavy. <laughs> Look at Alex's face. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, Alex, that's in a textbook. Right? <laughs> Future doctors are reading. So now I mean, that, his, that Hispanic female comes in and she says, I'm in pain. And they're going to ignore her because that textbook told them she's histrionic. She comes in and says her periods are heavy. Instead of saying, oh, my God, let me take this woman seriously. She's histrionic, right? The same thing with black patients. For a long time, it was mistakenly, erroneously put into textbooks that black people have what? Higher pain tolerance. And so you just didn't give them pain medicines because they can tolerate it. You would literally cut into their bodies, do a C-section and send her home without any pain medicine. Mm. Even when she was saying she was in pain. You know, the, the the bias that says, oh, they're more likely to be addicted to drugs. It's not until this opioid epidemic and you realize that, oh, my God, white America, Appalachia is struggling. That's when people suddenly stop calling it criminal behavior. And now it's an epidemic, which is what crack and everything else was before. You're, you're opening up a ton of worms right here now. <laughs> but, you know, that's the thing, right? But. The truth is we're taught these things and taught them like dogma. And so then we go out into practice and we do it without even realizing. So the 
persons more likely to be affected by fibroids actually get dismissed. Because when they come in, oh, she's histrionic. I'm not taking that seriously. Even though she's telling you she's bleeding too much, nobody's actually going to take a good history. Um, oh, you know, black woman, she's just trying not to go to work. So she's claiming that her periods are painful. She's claiming they're heavy. It's not until she's in the ER with a heart attack that people are like, huh, what could be causing this? And she's like, I've been bleeding too heavy every month. And now they're serious about it. And so this is why I get out there and I talk and I talk and I talk because one, I want patients themselves to advocate for themselves, but I'm also hoping that it it's the light bulb moment for our fellow healthcare professionals to say, hey, how can I do better? Because I believe most want to do better. They just don't realize how they've been programmed not to do better. Uh, that's that's definitely true. So I'm, I'm wearing a t-shirt called Bloodline, Family mm -hmm. Over Everything. And I know family is very <laughs> important to you. Yes. Um, you guys left home with your, your your mom. She had a vision that she wanted a better life for you and your brother. You were about 10 years older than, than your brother, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I know he looked up to you <laughs> for as long as possible. Um, traditionally, we have been trained, programmed to be doctors, engineers, and lawyers. But yeah. you already knew what you wanted to be. Um, yes. And I think in a recent interview, he said he knew that he didn't want to follow those three particular <laughs> paths. And he, yes. he, he did it. But one thing for sure, you guys supported what he wanted to do. Yeah. And you guys traveled with one another. So when you were in Rochester, yeah. they were there. When you were in Baltimore, they were here. Yes. Um, you went to Connecticut, they were there as well too. So <laughs> you guys have stuck by each other through the, the struggle. Yeah. So when he finally got his break and what was that for, for, <laughs> for you personally? Yeah. Um, oh, it was amazing. We, we didn't have to support him anymore. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> he was going to be able to that, that Winston, that Winston, she called you out. <laughs> So yeah, we were excited. Um, <laughs> that was, I think that was, you know, cause he moved to LA, but he moved to LA. We paid for that. Like I literally took up moonlighting um, mm -hmm. while I was in fellowship. I would work my weekends covering one Catholic hospital just South of New Haven and then another hospital in the Berkshires. So I could make additional mm -hmm. money to save up. So he could move to LA, have a place to stay, get a car and all that stuff. And so um it was great when he called to say he booked a marvel film and i was like are they gonna pay you and he's like yeah. <laughs> he's like when do you get your first check <laughs> and he's like well i gotta do the film first they're not gonna pay me before i you know i do the film and so um yeah i think one of the really fun things that we very much remember and i think my mom shared a video which is the day he came to tell us that he and her were actually dancing at one of the restaurants at one of the casinos just dancing because my mom was like hallelujah yes lord <laughs> <laughs> um so it was great i mean it's really good to see him achieve his dream and i say that to people because you know we we grew up 
we're a very theatrical, dramatic people. Although mm -hmm. people in the West Indies, Latin America, we could tell a story, man. But there wasn't any formal acting or path to acting available to us. Um, and so, yeah, you know, when because Winston lived with me while I was in medical school, I did get him into summer programs at our medical school. So at 15 going on 16, he actually got to be a part of a group of high schoolers who dissected a, a cadaver over the summer. And they got to wear a white coat the whole summer while at school. And my mom would be like, look at you. Oh my God, there's my little doctor. And he just, they're like, no, <laughs> you know, like, no. <laughs> he's like, it's cool, but no. Um, yeah. And so that was the thing. And then he said he wanted to go to law school. I think you remember we were actually at your house the day he went mm -hmm. and did his LSAT, you know, yep. he actually got into law school. And then he, he announced, he was like, you know, I don't feel it. I don't want to be a lawyer. I remember my mom saying to him, you can be dramatic in the courtroom. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, but credit to her. One of the things she's always done is she'll also talk with you through things. And so they kept talking and they made a deal, which is she, my mom said, is there a way that he doesn't have to give up this law school thing yet? And I said, I think he can defer matriculation. I've seen that happen with med school where people defer a year before they start mm -hmm. after they've been accepted. So he reached out to the law school and they said, yes, defer for a year. And so he then applied for acting school because that was the deal. The deal was, <laughs> my mom said, if you really want to do this thing, I'm, my concerns are you're a young black man. I don't want you just going out to Hollywood, trying to pursue a dream. And then you wake up one day and you're 30, the dream didn't come true and you have nothing that you can fall back on. And so that was his, his thing. His thing was with her, their deal was he'd apply to acting school, get in to get a master's degree so that he could at the very least become a professor in acting. Because my mom, my mom was like, I need a, I need a safety blanket here. <laughs> that you're not going to be a burden to your family if this doesn't work out. And so I know this isn't for everyone, but I'm just sharing what the rationale was, right? And so he applied and my mom really thought he'll apply, he won't get in and he'll go to law school. And so he applies and he keeps getting the auditions to the next step, the next step in the audition processes, being called to Yale, called to NYU, blah, blah. And then he gets accepted. And I still remember because first I was there at Hopkins in my residency, I get a call and it's him and he's screaming, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. And he, he even says, I'm in, I'm like, cool. <laughs> About 10 minutes later, my mom calls and my mom says, he's really that good, huh? And I said, I guess, you know? <laughs> and so he gets in and, you know, he spends his three years doing his master's in fine arts. And my mom went to every single show that he had she never missed a show not once not one of his plays that she ever missed and she also was the harshest critic right so you know and that was, was like that even when i was growing up so i'll come home with a test and i'll get a hundred for an essay that i wrote and my mom be like let me see that and then she'll go through and she'll like find all these mistakes you know and she'll literally come up to the school and say to the teacher why did you give her a hundred? This is not a hundred, right? I, I, I actually was an author in, um, in high school and uh, almost got me in trouble. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and so, yeah, I, and that's what she would do. She'd go to her shows 
And, you know, every show, they'll get standing ovations. You know, it's the Yale Repertory Theater. People would actually come to see the Yale students at the School of Drama put on shows. And then the show would be done and they'd be like out to dinner or something. And my mom would be like, you know, it wasn't that good, right? <laughs> you know, you could have done this better or that better. <laughs> you know, this one thing, you didn't show up tonight. You weren't there. You, you were there, but you weren't there. And I actually think that was a good thing in the end because it didn't overly fill up his head. He actually then would have to go home and hone his craft, do a little bit more, practice this more, do this more. Because my mom would be like, they're filling your head with hot air right now. That that was a little off, you know? So that's what I would say to your question. Um, in the end is support and really support enthusiastically. Throw yourself into the support because they can be great at anything. You just have to support them. Uh, that's that's wonderful. You guys recently did a philanthropic trip to Rwanda, right? Yes, which was amazing. Okay, amazing. so I, I definitely love to see that you know you guys are both giving back and supporting uh, missions to improve access. And I know he's doing some other work with um, the UN he for she. Um, yeah. This organization that we went to Rwanda with, which is Partners in Health, uh, there'll be an announcement between him and them in some in the coming weeks, which would be really great, I think, in terms of what he's looking to do with them. On my end, I went really as his physician, medical scientific advisor, and oh my God, just amazing. There, we, that's a whole other show, but I'll tell you two things that I learned from Rwanda that blew my mind. <clears throat> The first is how they're using technology. They're literally using drones to deliver blood products. So like at a remote hospital, they've got surgery, somebody needs blood. They get on an app and 20 minutes later, you hear a drone hovering and boop, drops two to four units of blood, right? And you're mm. like, whoa, right? The drones have a four hour, um, a, it's a 10, kilo <clears throat> 10 kilometer per blob, but it's a four hour range. They can fly two hours out, two hours in. So they've put these blood banks in strategic parts around the country now. And so wherever you are, you the app and the drone's gonna fly to you and come back, like mind blowing. They're also using it to deliver medications to people in remote areas, including insulin. So folks who don't have access to refrigeration, et cetera, you're, the drone's bringing you your insulin that's going to be stable for about three to four days in a clay pot because the clay pots actually keep temperature cool for a few days. Mind-blowing. Mm. So that's one yep. thing I saw that really blew my mind. And the other, which actually made me think of Baltimore, when I was in residency, it was very common for people to say our patients are very transient. They don't keep the same address. We lose them. It's hard to follow up on our patients. Um, there, one of the things they do is they have something called a community health worker. And so for every 50 households, you nominate someone from your local community to be mm -hmm. your community health worker. And that person goes from house to house every month just checking in. And okay. so if you haven't had your period, this person's going to be like, have you done a pregnancy test? If you're like, you know, I've been feeling sleepy, tired, this person with them is going to be able to do a malaria test real quick on you, a COVID test real quick. Um, if your baby, they come and they weigh your baby every three to four months. If your baby isn't gaining weight, they're going to accompany you to the local health center. So an actual medical professional, because these aren't people who are medically trained. It's just somebody who's respected from the community who's elected mm -hmm. to this position. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know what? imagine if we had that here. Imagine if 
every apartment building had a, a designated community health worker. You knew the people in your building or you know the people in your neighborhood. And so you know if you haven't seen you know Alex for 10 days, let me go check on Alex. Yeah. But Alex came home and he was sent home on antibiotics. Let me just make sure he's doing okay with those antibiotics. Oh, you know, so-and-so, they're pregnant and... You know, I haven't seen her for a couple of days. Let me go see if she's home writhing in pain. You're going to know to get in an ambulance with her, especially if she's afraid of hospitals. And go with her. And I was like, oh, my God, that could be done here in such an amazing way. Very true. Yeah. Well, we so appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule. Um, I definitely learned a lot tonight. Um <laughs> Even about IVF and stuff like that. I mean, I, I wasn't planning on having kids, but I was like, wow, this is this is an investment. Yeah. So, so Sebastian and better. It's true. It's very true. It's very so true. So thank, thank you so much. Thank I, you very much. We really appreciate your time uh to you know to spend some time with us and, and share your knowledge and and uh, we look forward to, to hearing more about, you know, what you've got going on and the, and the amazing things that you that you will continue to do in, in the community of, of Las Vegas uh, for your patients. Um, and as always, thank you again very much for your time. We always tell all, all of our guests if there's ever anything that we can do to help you, please do not hesitate. Obviously, you have a personal connection with Mo, um, but for myself included, if there's ever anything that we can do for you, we would be glad to assist. Uh, however we can. Uh, but again, thank you. Thank you very much uh, to all of our followers. Thank you. Keep watching. Keep liking, comment, subscribe, share, 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 um, so that we can keep putting out awesome stuff for you guys. Uh, so everybody have a good night. Uh, be safe. And again, thank you very much. All right. And follow Dr. Duke on social media. Yep. Good night, everyone.